Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we'd love to get them from you. And just pass those to the center aisle and we will take note of them and um, we'll pray for you this week. Adopted into God's forever family. That seems to just emerge strongly out of our text this morning. The word family brings to mind many different thoughts depending on who you ask. For some, you'll ask, uh, tell me about your family, and they'll mention one wonderful memory after another, and they can't wait for the next family gathering. And you ask others, and it brings back thoughts of strife and abuse and fear and division and sorrow. I remember a line from a movie many years ago where one kid said, rolling up his sleeve, see that scar? This is what happens when you spill paint in the garage at my house growing up. So there are memories that are not warm. And we have seen over the last 50 years, families have a a steady decline with the tragedies of divorce and neglect and abuse. The foundational principles of marriage found in scripture have been replaced with makeshift options on just trying to hold things together and to cope and basically to do what people want to do. This has produced really a cynicism towards family, delaying in marriage, or not marrying at all. And this affects not only relationships across the board, but this, this affects how we relate to one another in the church. And so we need to be revived with reminders that one of the dominant metaphors in the Bible for the people of God is that we're a family, a part of a larger family of every tribe and tongue and kindred and land who will be gathered at the throne of God at the end of time. And so in this thought of family life, I was was just taken by the text which speaks about a spirit of adoption that's been given to every believer. We've been adopted. If you are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into God's forever family, which really brings to a larger... um, application, uh, not a larger application, but another application of how adoption has, over the last 10 years or so, been a a topic of conversation. I remember attending a convention in 2010 and hearing the clarion call of Tony Morita and David Platt and Russell Moore uh, speaking about the need for the orphans of the world. There are 143 million orphans in the world. And I remember coming back from that meeting and saying, you know, with Gwen, we can do something about that and entering into adoption and that being a part of our family story with the adoption of Esther, which has been a wonderful joy to our heart. But thinking about the application of this, we are adopted. Every believer is adopted and how that should impact our life and how we should uh, respond in gratitude to our great God uh, it's comforting to, to, to hear the scriptures as God speaks about the orphan. He established laws to pro- protect and provide for them. He executes just for the fatherless, justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And it's from that call that throughout church history, um, Christians have been on the front line of orphan care and adoption. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, in his 38-year pastorate, 
uh, called the church together and said, dear friends, we are a huge church and should be doing more for the Lord in this great city. I want us tonight to ask him to send some new work. And if we need money to carry it on, let's pray. And in time, God began to provide and they built orphanages and many boys who were nurtured and girls nurtured uh, were sustained and discipled. And, and many young men went into ministry going to the pastor's conference. On one occasion, Spurgeon was talking to a cynic, a scoffer, and he compared the failure of the unbeliever's social organization to care for the needy with the works of vibrant Christianity, and as such, with orphanage. At the end of the conversation, Spurgeon paraphrased the triumphant call of Elijah at Mount Carmel by saying, the God who answers by orphanages, let him be God. And so, uh, just the love and good deeds that go on display. And every week in our bulletin, you're reminded of the need for adoption, foster care in the state of Louisiana. And what that should remind us of is, I've been adopted too, in the most profound way, by the living God. By the living God. So, let's get into the text. In verse 14... We are to be led by the Spirit of God. In fact, that is the distinguishing mark of a true believer, is that you're led by the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like obedience. It looks like fruit. It looks like a commitment. It looks like um, uh, surrender and humility to the things of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the cause and the power to live the Christian life. In fact, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 9 of this same chapter says, if I don't have the Spirit of God within me, I don't belong to Christ. There is no such thing as a, a believer without the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And so we are to be led by Him, moment by moment, day by day. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're not to quench the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit as a, as a pattern of life. So my being filled and led by the Holy Spirit in the past is not sufficient for this moment or the days to come. This is a moment-by-moment walk in my life and in your life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so we start talking about God's children, and maybe you would be caught in by the common beliefs of this world, and you would say, well, we're all God's children, aren't we? Well, not everyone is a member of the family of God, or adoption would be a useless term to describe it. Why bother being adopted when you're already in it? But that is one of the distinctives of Scripture and the Gospel, that all is not well, that we have fallen short of God's glory, and when Adam sinned in the garden, it severed that relationship with God, and we've seen the effects of sin spanning even to this very moment. Jesus said to the disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. One who is going to come, a, a helper is going to come, and he's going to live in you. And he will be with you. And he will give you power to do all that I've commanded you to do. Not everyone is a member of God's family. God's children are led by the Holy Spirit, but not every. No, not, not everyone is a member of God's family. The rescuing message of the Bible is not that everyone is okay. The, the rescuing message of the Bible is that not all are in the fold of God. But Jesus is the good shepherd and 
and his sheep hear his voice, and he gathers them. By nature, I'm not a son of God. The only way I can enter into God's family is to be adopted. The only son of God by nature is Jesus Christ. And all the other children of God are not natural children, but adopted children. So we all share that in common, if you think about the beauty of God's redemption. Let me take it a step further. Really, you're in one of two people. You're either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, we all die. The human family is united in Adam. We come from one blood. And the denial of the Genesis account is really devastating theologically. Jesus referenced Genesis. In Adam, we all die, the scripture says. In 1 Corinthians 5.22, For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what, what are you saying? What's my big, how do I get into the family of God? By repenting of your sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, part of that beauty of redemption and salvation is that you are adopted into his forever family. That should make us want to run. I've just been so moved by the, the, the messages of what we've sung together this morning, really urging us to come and to draw near to this great God who receives us through Christ. So in Adam, we all die. So how do I get out of Adam? <laughs> well, in, in Christ, we're all made alive. There's something else that came to my mind in studying this point this week, and it, it's a reference from 1 John 3. And it's so graphic, it's startling. It's startling. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That would be interesting conversation at lunch. Or around the coffee pot at work. Wouldn't it? Just let the Bible speak here for a moment. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The King James is not helpful here. It says whoever is born of God does not sin. And the idea behind the verb is continued on in a pattern of sin. Believers repent and begin again in obedience. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning, sinning because he has been born of God. Now listen to verse 10. Feel the weight of this. By this it is evident... This is 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this is all pointing to outward obedience in our claim to know God through Jesus Christ. The prodigal son, when he came to his senses in the pig pen in Luke 15... He remembered his father, and what did that do? That began to stir his heart to say, he's a good father. He's a great father. And his heart was directed to hopeful thoughts about his dad, and he determined to get up and to go to him. This is the attitude the Holy Spirit creates in our hearts to assure us that we are no longer the devil's children, but rather God's sons and daughters. We, we now know that God is our loving Father, and because we know this, we are drawn to Him, and we come to Him. We say with Peter, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So to be a Christian means to be led by God's Spirit. 
And what does he do? Quickly, he empowers us. He empowers us to put off besetting sin. He renews our mind. He renews our mind. Verse 6 of this chapter. The mind is set on the flesh. That's set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He renews our minds with his truth. He moves our hearts to seek God and to live obediently. Verse 8 says that if you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. He moves our hearts to seek Him and to live obediently in the Spirit. He directs and guides our wills to do what? To do His will. We're, we're, we're told in Scripture, don't love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, it's passing away. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever, lives forever. He directs and guides our wills. So we are, this is wonderful to be led by the Spirit. Notice with me secondly, if you're following on your insert, and I hope you are. No longer are we slaves, but sons. No longer slaves, but sons. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, salvation does not come with a sense of fear and dread. It comes rather with the spirit of adoption. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Slavery and bondage to the law probably. Slavery and bondage to sin. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. You've been adopted. And Paul is writing to believers. This section is for believers. You've received the spirit of adoption. That's the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit of adoption. Adoption gives us the rights of children. Regeneration gives us the nature of children. We are partakers of both of these. Charles Spurgeon said we are sons. We have the nature of the children. We have the rights of the children. We belong to the household of God. He is our Father. We are His children in Jesus Christ. So look with me at this concept. What does it mean to be adopted by God? If we look at the panorama of God's redemption, where does it begin? When we think about salvation, where does Scripture inform us that our salvation redemption began? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation, he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. And we're going to be talking more and more about that as we plow through Romans. But that's where it begins. Where does it end? When you think about your redemption, where does it end? Not at the grave. In the presence of God, in glory. Before the foundation of the world, in election. Before the throne of God, in glorification. And there's lots that happens in between, right? The gospel was preached. There was a gospel call. This is how God accomplishes his redemption through the preaching of the gospel. The reason we emphasize preaching in this church is because it's underscored as priority in the Bible. We must preach the gospel. We must declare the word of God. And we've heard that word. And we've responded to that word in faith and repentance. We know that the Spirit of God is doing its work through the preaching of the gospel, stirring hearts, 
bringing about regeneration, which leads to faith and repentance. And we've looked at justification being declared legal and righteous in the presence of God by faith in Christ alone. But there's this picture of adoption. Not only are we legally declared righteous, but we are adopted as a child, as a son, daughter of God, adoption. So this idea of adoption means that our status has changed. Our status has changed. He is, we've been predestined for adoption as sons, Ephesians 1, 4 tells us. And this should be a great comfort to us because secondly, under the second major heading, we have a, a father who reigns over all. We have a God who reigns over all. At the end of time, when all is said and done, he reigns, we're accountable to him. And because of that, in this world, we cry out to him, Abba, Father. Now, what in the world does that mean? Maybe you're wondering what it, why that strange expression in our culture anyway. It's well represented in the Bible. The spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And uh, let me just begin answering that by saying, it is our privilege in Jesus Christ to call God Father. Jesus taught the disciples, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. This was really revolutionary. No Old Testament Jew ever thought of addressing God directly as my Father. Occasionally the word Father is used as a designation for God in the Old Testament. But it's not often and it's never personal. This was a new title with Jesus. He urged his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this, this would be a model prayer by which we would build all of our prayers and supplications and intercessions uh, to the Lord. We're not talking to a distant deity. We're talking to a, a God who's our Father, who is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Absolutely nothing. So he is our father. Jesus always called God father with the only exception of the cry from the cross when he quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was our sin bearer and the wrath of God was poured out upon him and he absorbed the wrath of God, which we rightfully deserve as our substitute. The wrath of God was delivered onto him as a payment for our sins that we might trust in him and be delivered. In Mark's gospel, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, everything is permissible for you, Mark fourteen thirty six. But what does it mean, Abba? It's not a European band from the 70s. This is an Aramaic expression. The early church fathers are united in, in, in seeing Abba as a, a term used by children to address their fathers. The Jewish Talmud uh, confirms this. When a child was weaned, it learns to say Abba and Emma for mo mother. Daddy and mommy is what it means. Abba and Emma, daddy and mommy. In the Jewish mind, to address God as daddy was totally ir irreverent. You can't talk like that to God. But Jesus taught the opposite. 
when you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. And when the Spirit of God comes and dwells within you, it's the spirit of adoption where you cry out to him, what? Abba, Father, Daddy, come. Help me, Lord. It's a beautiful expression. Not just that he has redeemed us through, through the blood and righteousness of his Son. We are his children as much as Christ is his Son. Bring that into your understanding of redemption. Abba, Father. In the moments when you don't even know what to pray. In the moments that you're so overwhelmed by the gratitude of how He's met needs in your life. You're saying, Abba, Father, thank you. Let me close with this. Verse 16. The most blessed of assurances. And I would hold this out to us as a church and for those who have gathered here with us who may be thinking about your salvation, the, how, do, how can we ever know that we're saved? Well, here's the most blessed of assurances. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit of God, dwelling within the believer, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is not anything a human being can impart to you. You, as, as much as your mother may love you, she cannot give you assurance of your salvation ultimately. As faithful as your pastors may try to be to the word of God and ministering to you, we cannot impart assurance of your salvation to you. It's the spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit that you, you have come to the place in your life where you acknowledge your sin, you see that, that God has has done the saving work through Christ, through his sinless life and his death on the cross and resurrection, that you've turned from your sins, seeing no other way to be made right before God and laying hold of him by faith. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. And then as you walk with him in obedience, the spirit of God dwelling within you to empower you, to enlighten and illumine your mind of the things of God. And you begin to learn obedience and you develop convictions and you begin to put things off that you need no need to go. And you're putting on the Lord and your life is beginning to change because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And you walk with him and the spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're his child. And where that really comes to bear is when you have a time, when you have a moment, when you sin against God and you blow it profoundly. And you say in your heart of hearts like Jeremiah, I'm no more going to uh, proclaim in his name. I'm going to go do my own thing. And that doesn't last very long. Why? Because the Spirit of God is within you. And you're reminded, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. My salvation is not based upon my performance. My salvation is based upon His performance at the cross. Where else can I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. To you I run. I come. I come to you. When's the last time you've ever thought that as a, a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted? You're not an orphan in this world. You're not like a, a child blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. You're adopted. God is your father. Jesus Christ is your prophet and priest and king and savior.
You lack no good thing. His hand is on you. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer? No one. Jesus Christ has bore, bore all of the accusation. To be a child of God is not something we get through biological blood work. To be adopted into God's family comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a major theme in the Bible. It's a major theme in the New Testament. To be adopted, to be loved. Warren Wiersbe said, there is no need for the believer to be defeated. He can yield his body to the spirit and by faith overcome the old nature. The spirit of life will empower him. The spirit of death will enable him to overcome the flesh. And the spirit of adoption will enrich him and lead him into the will of God. I pray that this wonderful, hope-filled message of being adopted into God's forever family would just tear down walls and stumbling blocks in your life and for you to pursue Christ with a new abandon, to seek him with all your heart. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward as Jared prepares to lead us in the Lord's Supper. This is a time where we can apply all of these things to proclaiming what Christ has done for us on the cross and what he's done through adoption. Jared, would you lead us?